We're continuing our series in the book of Exodus, looking at God's sufficiency, his all-sufficiency. And so if you want to turn there this evening to Exodus chapter 14, and we'll continue looking at, at God's revealing himself to the nation of Israel, to the Egyptians and to us. We're going to read the first 12 verses. And then we'll open in a word of prayer. Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, over against Baal Zephon, before it ye shall encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. and He shall follow after them. And I will be honoured upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with a high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and encamped by the sea beside Pihahiroth before Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt with, thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for this great and precious opportunity, Lord God, that we have to open your word and to be instructed out of it, Lord. We thank you, Father, for the freedom that we have in our country to do this. And Father, we, uh, as, we, as we think on these things, we pray for those nations around the world that don't have that same liberty. And help us, Father, then not to take uh, this for granted, not to take this privilege, this honour that we have. Help us, Father, to deal, uh, Lord, with your word in the way that you would want us to deal with it. Help us, Father, to reverence your word. Help us, Father, to, uh, Lord, hold it up high and to obey all that you have for us. Help us to be, uh, Lord, um, have, have ears to hear. Uh, give us uh, wills to obey. And Lord, especially we pray that you'd be glorified uh, through our lives as we walk in, in according to your word, as we regulate our lives 
by your precepts. Even now we pray, Father, that, Lord, you would bless each and every one here. Give them, uh, Lord, attentiveness. Lord, we pray that if there's any, any uh, tiredness, Father, that you would drive that from them. If there are any cares of this world, Father, that uh, are getting them down, Father, we pray that they would forget those while we, we uh, Lord, look at your word. And that you would, Father, comfort those who are struggling, those in tight places, those, Lord, under heavy burdens. Father, those, Lord, in, in desperate situations, we pray that you would, uh, Lord, be glorified through all that is said and done. That, Lord God, you'd hide me behind the cross, that Christ alone would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death, rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said, into the valley of death, rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldiers knew someone had blundered, not theirs to make reply, not theirs to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. You might recognise this as being the first three verses of the poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, by Alfred Lord Tennyson. The, po uh, the poem commemorates the heroic but failed cavalry charge led by Lord Cardigan against the Russian forces during the Crimean War. It depicts the soldiers being bombarded from three sides as they fought valiantly to reach their objective. And of the 670 men that rode into the valley of death, more than 278 were killed or captured. The conditions faced by the Light Brigade are reminiscent of those faced by the nation of Israel as they escaped from Egypt. They found themselves in a desperate situation, encircled on three sides by mountains and the Red Sea, and on the fourth side being hemmed in by Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. The charge of the Light Brigade was a sad demonstration of the folly of, of poor tactics and, and monumental miscommunication. But on the surface, it seemed as if Israel were beset by the same problems. It seems as if Moses had miscalculated and in his confusion had led Israel into a self-imposed trap. And that is certainly how Pharaoh understood the situation. We're reported there in Exodus 14 verse 3 that Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And Pharaoh thinks that Moses has led the people into the valley of death. And now it would be easy for him and his army to recapture these Israelites and to enslave them once again. But the reality was far different. God's intention was to lure 
the Egyptians into a trap so that he could show his glory over the Egyptians one last time. Here in chapter 14, verse 17 and 18, God tells us the reason why he was doing all of this. Verse 17 says, And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honour upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honour upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. You know, but the destruction of the Egyptians would not only bring honour to God, and that word honour is elsewhere translated as glory in our King James Version, but God was, and, and obviously showing again, as we saw this morning, God's superiority over the Egyptians. But it would also illustrate the ability of God to take care of his people before they embarked on this long journey in the Sinai Peninsula. God was going to reveal to his newly formed nation the truth that he alone was sufficient for their safety. The Lord was going to demonstrate that he could be trusted to keep them safe on their pilgrim journey. And if God could confuse and humiliate and annihilate the world's foremost military superpower, then surely he would be able to protect his people as they marched to the land that he had promised them. God's rescue of the nation of Israel from the wicked intentions of Pharaoh at the Red Sea is a reminder to believers today who are on their spiritual pilgrimage that he is sufficient for their safety also. And the truth that God wants us to learn is that he has all sufficient power to meet any enemy or challenge or hardship that we could ever face. God is greater, far greater than anything we can face. And what a blessing it is to know and trust the all-sufficient God. In our studies in God's all-sufficiency so far, we've seen that his personal name, Jehovah, reveals his character as being self-existent and therefore self-sufficient. Those two attributes always go together. We have seen him to be sufficient for salvation, that God had provided a Passover lamb to be the substitutionary sacrifice for the life of the firstborn. And by that sacrifice, he redeemed the nation of Israel from spiritual bondage as well as physical slavery. We also saw God display his sovereign and self-sufficient power over the multiplied uh, gods of Egypt by sending the plagues upon them. As we saw this morning, each plague was calculated at humiliating the gods that were meant to protect whatever it was that that the, the plague touched. But the nation is now on the move. The exodus has begun. But no sooner were they on the move when it seems as if they are trapped. It seems as if they are boxed in. It seems that uh, Moses has, has made some foolish choices. And they are about to be 
destroyed or at least recaptured. To borrow a thought, a thought from the poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, mountains to the right of them, mountains to the left of them, and the Red Sea in front of them. On top of that, Pharaoh and his, uh, and his armies bearing down upon them from the rear. And so how is God going to uh, deliver the nation of Israel? How was the all-sufficient God, Jehovah, the great I Am, going to rescue his people? We're going to look at this, uh, this chapter, chapter 14, this, uh, tonight and begin it tonight looking at half the message and we'll can, uh, finish it off tomorrow morning. So as Pastor Davey said, we encourage you to come if you're able to do that. But notice with me first the decision of Pharaoh. The decision of Pharaoh to follow up. So according to Exodus 14 verse 2, Israel have encamped by the Red Sea. Verse 2, speak unto the children of Israel. That they turn and encamp before Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, over against Baal Zephon. Before it ye shall encamp by the sea. And it should be noticed here that God has been the one who has been leading the nation out of Egypt. Most traffic leaving from Egypt to go into the land of Canaan would have headed east along the coastal route. That, that, that uh, route, a road called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. But according to chapter three, uh, 13 and verse 17, God did not want them to go via that route, even though it was the shortest and, and also the most convenient way. They tell us that Israel would have made it into Canaan within two or three weeks if they had followed that road. Chapter 13, let's read verse 17. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. And so God's reason for not traveling via that shortened route was to avoid war. The nation at this early stage was not physically prepared for battle and any engagement like at this time could have caused the people to repent or to change their minds and to return to Egypt. We know that they were a fickle bunch and even in this passage that we've read they wanted to return to Egypt rather than seemingly die in the wilderness and so God knew their frame, God knew their heart, God knew their mind and so God led them by another way. Another reason for avoiding this route was that God had promised Moses that, the, that he and the people of Israel would worship him on Mount Sinai. We saw that on the first night when we uh, began our series here in Exodus, uh, that God had promised to Moses as a token uh, that he was calling him, that, that, that they would worship there, worship God on that Mount Sinai. But instead, they were directed to go south via the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, verse 18. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. Verse 20 states that they encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness, which would be the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. And Israel is headed in the right direction. They're headed away from Egypt on their way onto the, on, on the right-hand side of the Gulf of Suez. If you, know, if you maybe have a picture in the back of your Bible or a map at the back of your Bible, you know the Red Sea sort of juts up this way and then there's two fingers that, that head off 
There's the Gulf of Aqaba on the right and there's the Gulf of Suez on the left. And they're going to the, to the uh, if you're heading south, they're on the left-hand side or from our point of view, they're on the right-hand side of, of the Gulf of Suez. So they're on the right way to, to escape the Pharaoh and his army. But then they make a sudden and unexpected move. The one in, uh, mentioned in verse 2. In tr- instead of travelling southeast, they change direction and, and travel southwest and actually put themselves on the left-hand side of, that, of the Red Sea there, of that Gulf of Suez, the Egyptian side. And so if you were to plot their course on a map, it would look as if they were zigzagging their way down the e- eastern flank of Egypt. And no wonder Pharaoh thought that the nation was confused. As we read in verse 3, he thought that they were entangled in the land, that the wilderness had shut them in. He thought that they were wandering aimlessly and in confusion and that they had boxed themselves in and uh, now they were easy pickings. This news was the catalyst that caused Pharaoh to change his mind and follow the fleeing Israelites. In his reasoning, it was foolish for the nation to let go of their slave labor force. After all, uh, you know, uh, if you don't have to do the work yourself, it, you know, it becomes pretty easy. And so uh, they, they have a change of heart, verses 4 and 5. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. And so encouraged by Israel's seeming confusion, Pharaoh decided to follow up after them with his chariots and his army. And he caught up with them near Pihahiroth. We read that in verses 6 to, to nine and, and he's gathered his chariots, his choice chariots, the crack core of his chariots, plus the other chariots, plus his horsemen and, and the marching army. And, he, and with all of his might, he follows after the nation of Israel as they flee from Egypt. And he catches up with them in the very place that God had told them to camp there on the opposite side of Baal-Zephon, by the Red Sea. But we should not think that Israel's erratic movements were an indication that they were lost, or that somehow Moses didn't know his way around the, the wilderness. Maybe he had his map upside down. That's not the reason. On the contrary, the text tells us that God was leading them every step of the way. The, inst- the instructions were, uh, of where to go came directly from God. We read that in verse 17. It says there, And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, go that God led them. Verse 18 again, But God led the people. Chapter 4 and verse 2, Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp before Pihahiroth. God is the one giving the directions. And this passage even tells us that uh, uh, one of the ways that God led his children through was through the pillar of cloud and by fire. Look there in verses 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud and led them by the way 
and by night in a pillar of fire and gave them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The Lord here leading them in the way by this cloud and by this pillar of fire. And on top of that, it was God who was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would decide to follow the escaping nation in an effort to re-enslave them. As we read in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them. And so Israel found themselves hemmed in between the mountains and the Red Sea because God had led them there. God was in charge of everything that was taking place. And even even the seeming contradiction of bringing them to a place whereby they could be recaptured. But God had a reason for all of this. And sometimes he has to lead his people into difficult places, into places of hardships and great trials. At times he has to lead us between the devil and the deep blue sea, as that old saying goes. Or, or, Or more appropriately here, between the devil and the deep red sea. Without question, we would like the easy path and the straight and direct route to the promised blessings of God, free from being hounded by the the wicked and, and dangerous people, but because of who God is. Because He is all wise and all knowing. He knows what is best for us. And what is best for us is to realize that our only hope lies in God. God wants us to know experientially that He alone is all sufficient for all of our needs. He wants us to know that if He does not deliver, then there is no deliverance. Sometimes the only way we can recognize our own inadequacy is for God to hem us up between the mountains and the Red Sea. In our egocentric mindset, we are so prone to live under the the delusion of self-rule and self-sufficiency. We often walk through life unaware of how helpless we really are and just how dependent we are upon God for everything we have. The Lord has to, be, has to put us in positions where we once again recognize our, our, that our self-reliance must be replaced by God's all-sufficiency. You know, the Lord wants, us to rem- wants to remind us that He can be trusted in all things. That we ought to look to Him for all things. Keep your finger here in Exodus 14. Come with me to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. We'll read verses 5 to 9. Psalm 118. Verses 5 to 9. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. 
It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. In this passage here, the psalmist uh, describes a time when God helped him through a a specific trial. The problem he faced resulted in distress, he tells us in verse 5. This word distress means a tight place. It means a confining place. It means to lack room, to be hemmed in. It speaks of being encompassed on all sides by trials, just like Israel at the Red Sea. They were restricted so that they could not escape. Here it describes the psalmist being surrounded by impossible circumstances, squeezing him in on all sides. Notice in verses 10 to 12, that term there uh, uh, used, um, oh, wrong chapter here, Ch- verses 10 to 12, uh, used four times that they're, they're, he, they're compassed about. He says, that all nations compassed me about. Uh, verse 11, they compassed me about. Again, they compassed me about twice in verse, verse 11. Verse 12, they compassed me about like bees. Here's a, here's a man describing himself being enclosed and squeezed from every side. Yet it was when he was hemmed in by trials and dangers that God intervened, setting him, notice at the end of verse 5, in a large place. The enlarged place is the opposite of the tight place. It describes being in a position where the trial is removed, where there is freedom to move. And many believe that this psalm was written uh, for the celebration that accompanied the Feast of the Tabernacles. And if we probably would all know that the Feast of the Tabernacles uh, commemorated Israel's deliverance from Egypt. For a week they lived in booths made of branches and and palm branches uh, to, to commemorate the time when they, when they were on the march through the wilderness and, and living, you know, a, a nomadic life. That feast commemorated Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And the sentiments of the psalm are certainly appropriate to the difficulties Israel was facing here in Exodus 14. The psalmist tells us that in the midst of distress, hardship and suffering, we all have a choice to make. Either we can trust God or we can look to man for help. That's what he says here. The psalmist, he says he could put his confidence in man. He could put his confidence in princes or he could trust the Lord. And Israel could have turned to human alliances to give aid or they could depend upon the all-sufficiency of God. This is a choice, beloved, that we are called on to make as well. During those times when we are in a tight place, when we are hemmed in and in a confined place, notice what the psalmist recommends. He recommends here, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in princes. In this whole situation, God was simply teaching Israel that they could trust in His all-sufficient power to to deliver them from the tight places of life. And that is what he wants us to know experientially as well. 
you know, given the good times, we could all say, yes, God wants us to trust him. And we all know that. We've heard sermon after sermon over the years of our Christian life about trusting the Lord during trials and difficulties. But, you know, the, the, the rubber hits the road during that time when we are in, in the trial, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's those times when, when, we, when, when we find out whether we truly do trust the Lord or whether it is just lip service that we give. God wants us to learn this not just in our, as part of our theology. That's, what, that's, that's important, yes. But he wants us to learn that experientially through experience. And that's why he will lead us, just like he led Israel, into tight places. So don't be surprised when you're hemmed in on every, every side by trials, by sickness and physical disability, by financial difficulties by relational problems, by besetting sins. But if we turn to the Lord, we can learn to lean upon his sufficiency. God is teaching us that he can be trusted because he is all sufficient. Did Israel trust the Lord and lean on his sufficiency? That brings us to the second point, the despair of the people. The despair of the people. They wanted to give up. Back in Exodus chapter 14. Let's read verses 10 and to 12 again. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness." Notice in verse 12, or verse 10, sorry, the word there, behold. Behold, says, it says that when the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. The impression given here is that Israel is surprised by the suddenness of this attack. One minute, there's nothing on the horizon, and then the next minute, it's filled with visions of hundreds of chariots and, and, and hundreds of thousands of men maybe uh, pursuing them and imagine you are escaping from a, a hostile government and you suddenly see hundreds of armored tanks approaching to capture you then you would know something of the fear that sight instilled into the israelites the chariots of bible times uh, were like the mechanized armor of our own day israel is hemmed in by the physical geography but now they are also pursued by the world's mightiest army and what was their response their response was to fall in despair notice in verse 10 they cried out unto the lord you know in our distress it's it's a good thing it's the right thing to do to cry out unto the lord but this cry was nothing, was anything rather than faith-filled. This was a cry of complaint and criticism. 
The proof of their reaction is found in their sarcastic criticism of Moses as God's appointed leader. And under extreme circumstances, they did what nearly everyone does. Blame the leadership. Isn't that true in politics? It's true in the church. And it's certainly true in Israel here. What makes this response all the more disappointing is that they had just witnessed God's sovereign power through the, through the plagues. Had they forgotten so quickly... Had they forgotten the results of the Passover just the night before? The last phrase of verse 8 states that the children of Israel went out with a high hand. The commentator John Davis states that the high hand carries the idea of triumphantly or even confidently. And so here there's no doubt there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of mirth as they travel out of Egypt and there's a lot of bravado. But at the very first sign of trouble, beloved, the very first sign of trouble, they are ready to give up and to go back into slavery. Notice the deep sarcasm of their statement. Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Verse 11. No graves in Egypt? Egypt was a land full of tombs and graves. It still is today. They're finding new ones all the time. And Egypt's major preoccupation was building tombs and stuffing them with treasure in anticipation of the next life. In fact, the Israelites were the slave labor used to build some of those tombs, including some of those pyramids. And basically, the nation of Israel was saying this, that if your intent was to kill us here in the wilderness, there are plenty of graves in, graves in Egypt for you to do that. You didn't have to bring us out here in order to, you know, to, to lay our bodies in the, in the ground. There's plenty of places we could have been buried there, back there in Egypt. And what they are willingly forgetting is that Moses was only the human face of the Exodus. The real power behind all these events was Jehovah. Moses was only the under-shepherd. God is the true shepherd leading his flock from danger. But what they don't realize is that to attack Moses is in reality to attack God. God will make that plain as we uh, will see that next, uh, uh, tomorrow in the next, the next message. But their complaint continued. Look at verse 12. Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And so here it is, beloved, out of their own mouths, their willingness to give up and to go back into bondage. God was in the process of redeeming Israel in order for them to serve him. And at the first sign of trouble, they are willing to turn their backs on God and go back into the slavery of the world. What a sad state Israel found itself in. How quickly they forgot the rigors of the Egyptian whip. How quickly they forgot the misery of slavery. 
And in case we think that their servitude was light and carefree, let let me remind you of how miserable their lot was. Keep your finger here and go back to chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Notice just how bad their situation was. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. That word rigor means severity or cruelty. They made their lives, notice this, bitter with hard or with difficult bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. You see how quickly they've forgotten? How quickly they're willing to go back into bondage? In case we forget how they responded to their harsh taskmasters, let me also remind you of the emotion that they displayed here in chapter 2 in verses 23 and 24. Chapter 22 and 20, uh, chapter 2 verses 23 and 24. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And notice this, and the children of Israel, they sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. Does this sound like it was a fun thing? A light thing? Did they really want to go back to Egypt and resume their former lives as slaves? They certainly did not have the attitude of Patrick Henry, one of America's founding fathers, who said, give me liberty or give me death. Their attitude was, give me slavery, but don't give me death. Don't let me die out here. I'd rather be back in in, in bondage. Oh, beloved, that's not what most people would desire but what accounts for this folly what 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 is behind this foolish reasoning well let me repeat an answer given by by john davis he says the reaction of the hebrews is quite typical of those whose spiritual perspectives are those which are conditioned by the present alone without a historical consciousness of what god has done and a deep-rooted faith in what God will do, one is easily moved by the emotion of a given situation. The shallow responses of the Hebrews should be a warning to all of those who put all their emphasis on the present. End quote. So what was their problem? It can be summed up in one word. Short-sightedness. That's hyphenated, that's why it's one word. Short-sightedness. Short-sightedness, and if we want to expand that, a failure to remember. All they could see was the present problem, and so overawed were they by it that they forgot the mighty displays of power that God had demonstrated only days and weeks and months before. Their failure to remember blinded them from seeing the all-sufficiency of God. 
It created in them, according to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, an evil heart of unbelief. Beloved, it is when we forget the past workings of God, both in the biblical record and in the record of his dealings in our own life, that we fail to trust him in the present predicament. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 15 verse 4 that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. See, the record of God's intervention in the lives of people in the Bible is meant to stir faith and hope. But that's only if that's, but that's only to, uh, of use if we bring those stories of God's involvement to the forefront of our mind. You see, the faculty of memory is important to our spiritual lives. God tells us uh, numerous times throughout the Scriptures that we are to remember certain things because it's important for our spiritual journey. And beloved, if we don't remember then we will be the poorer for it. We will suffer for it in this pilgrimage. Without that memory, we become short-sighted. We, we are unable to look back in the past at God's mighty deeds on behalf of those who are His. And we are unable to trust Him for future needs and problems. Our fixation on present problems and the future to remember God's intervention in the past will bring despair because it causes us to give up just like the Israelites. And how many believers have thrown in the towel and are no longer following God today because they were offended at the trial that they were going through. They were unable to discern God's hand in the difficult circumstance and so they thought that God had abandoned them they didn't throw themselves upon god's promises and count him faithful to to do all that he had bound himself to do and so they gave up in despair they were overcome by fear and unbelief many are not even in church today because they did not think in terms of the scriptural record don't be fixated on present problems. Look back in awe of God's past interventions and look forward in faith and hope in the ways that God will intervene for you in the future. You know, this, is, this application is not just something of my own devising. It's not something that I have contrived. This is the teaching of the inspired scripture. Turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, we'll read verses 7 to 12. Psalm 106, verses 7 to 12, gives us the Holy Spirit's divine interpretation of the events here in Exodus 14. Here he's talking about the very same thing. Let's read verses 7 to 12. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. 
Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be made known or to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness, and he saved them from the hand of him that hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they his words and sang his praise. And we'll get to that tomorrow. But notice this here, our fathers. He's talking, the psalmist here is talking about that generation that we're reading about here in Exodus 14. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercy. Notice that two reasons are given for their failure to trust God at that point. Two reasons. First, they understood not thy wonders in Egypt. In other words, they lacked spiritual insight into what God did through the plagues. They failed to learn anything substantial about the God who had come to deliver them. They failed to recognize his power. They failed to recognize his sufficiency. They failed to recognize his uniqueness. They could not put two and two together in that spiritual sense. Beloved, these are a spiritually blinded people. Yes, they're redeemed. God is redeeming his people. But they're spiritually blind. And secondly, notice here in this verse that they remembered not the multitude of God's mercies. They failed to recall the ways that God had showed concern for them. Time and time again. And the result was that Israel provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Did you see that? They were complaining against Moses. Moses, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you have to deliver us into the wilderness? We told you, let us alone. And all the while, they're actually provoking God by their unbelief you know that word provoked more often translated as rebelled throughout the old testament 29 times it is translated by a cognate of rebel and only seven times as provoke in fact this is how the exact same hebrew word is translated in psalm 107 verse 11 says there because they rebelled against the words of the Lord of God and contemned the counsel of the most high and thus beloved their fear and unbelief manifested in them a heart of rebellion they were ready to throw up their hands in surrender and be marched back into Egypt i wonder have you ever considered your failure to trust God as an act of rebellion? Why is it so? Because unbelief strikes at the very character of God. It maligns God's character. It insults the character of God. It slanders Him. And throughout the Scriptures and throughout our lives, hasn't God shown Himself time and time again to be very concerned about our welfare? And yet our failure to trust and obey God is our way of saying that God can't really be trusted. 
or, or that God can't take care of us. And that is an affront to the trustworthiness of God's word. It expresses doubt that the Lord has ability or that the Lord has compassion to care for you. And by doing that, we are really diminishing the God's glory. We're saying that he is less than he claims to be. You know, there's another psalm that references the Exodus. Psalm 77, if you want to turn there. Psalm 77 is a, is a psalm written by Asaph. Asaph during a time of great distress. And part of that distress is caused by God's apparent delay in answering his prayers for help. And because he's feeling abandoned, he asks a series of questions here. Look in verse 7. We'll read from seven, verse 7 to 9. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? That's the, that's the feelings from the depth of his heart in the midst of his distress as God tarried to answer his prayer. He's wondering, God, are you there? Has your compassion failed? Have you abandoned me in my distress? What is the answer to these questions? The answer is, of course, no. God has not abandoned. God has not forgotten to be gracious. God has not shut up uh, his tender mercies in his anger. Verse 10 gives us the turning point to this psalm. His mindset changes when he begins to remember God's mighty saving acts in the past. Look at verse 10. And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. And what were the, what were the works and wonders that Asaph was going to remember and, and going to meditate upon? Well, in this case, he reflected upon the exodus. The hour when God worked powerfully to redeem his people from the Egyptian oppression. Look here in verses 15 down to verse 20. Psalm 77. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people. Isn't that what God's doing right then and there? Redeeming, buying his people out of slavery of Egypt. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw thee, O God. The waters saw thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent a sound. Thine arrows were also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lightened the world and the earth trembled and shook. Thy way is in the sea and thy path in great waters and thy footsteps are not known thou lettest thy people like a flock 
by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And here, beloved, is a vivid description of God's all-sufficient power to keep his people safe. By choosing to focus on, uh, on this past divine triumph, Asaph received renewed encouragement to face his ordeal. His God-focused concentration bolstered his faith. His troubling distress was soon transformed into triumphant rejoicing by remembering what God had done in the past. Asaph has it right here. Right on the money. When we remember and reflect upon what God has done in the past, it becomes noticeably easier to trust God for the, in the present distress. Commentator Stephen Lawson states, Times of great distress can be faith-building and soul-strengthening as believers reflect upon the mighty works of God in generations past. Such a backward look provides encouragement to the downtrodden heart drowning in despair. God has worked powerfully in earlier times and is fully capable of doing so again today. End quote. And beloved, in part, this is where God's sufficiency is to be found. This is, in part, this is where God's sufficiency is displayed to us. And that is part of God's design, a backward look to find a forward hope. And the reason for this, the reason that this is true is because of who God is. He is Jehovah, the great I am, the one who is and was and is to come. In his nature, he is self-existent and self-sufficient. And that means that he is also immutable. A word that means unchangeable or unchanging. And what God was to the children of Israel, he will be to us today. Malachi 3, 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. And so, beloved, what are you facing this evening? Are you facing tight places? Are you facing difficult circumstances? Restrictive problems? Are you hemmed in between the devil and the deep red sea? While God doesn't always ordain these trials, he does allow them in order for God's people to turn to him in faith so that his all-sufficiency can be displayed. Do you need strength for today and hope for the future? Do you need to be bolstered by a display of God's all-sufficiency? Then, beloved, don't look to yourself. Don't look to another man. Look to God. He alone is sufficient for all our safety. He alone is the one that we can turn to for help in the times of trouble, in times of trial. And beloved, we are told, as we saw before in Psalm 118, don't put your confidence 
in man or princes. Put your confidence in God. Put your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, who the Bible says is ever liveth now to make intercession for us. Put your confidence in him. Put your confidence in the God who is all sufficient. To the one who is sitting on the throne of grace. Come to him confidently as Hebrews 4 Verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly or confidently unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Beloved, we have such a great high priest. One whom the Bible says sympathizes with all of our infirmities and all of our distresses. Beloved, Christ has been through tight places. And he knows when we go through tight places what we need. We can trust him. Yes, go to people, go to believers who can help you, who can encourage you. But put your confidence in God. Trust in him. And don't give up what these children of Israel were ready to do. Find grace and help in time of need by going to our all-sufficient God. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our wonderful, gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the example that you give to us in the lives of the children of Israel and, Lord, in their exodus. And Father, we would have to confess this evening that we have so many times been just like the children of Israel when we were in our tight places. Lord, we have complained and murmured, demonstrated an evil heart of unbelief. We've rebelled against you by not trusting in thee. Father, we know you're a gracious God. But even in the midst of our rebellion and our hardness of heart, Father, you are there to help. Lord, we pray that we would remember these truths. That we would remember to remember. All of the times, Lord, you have helped your people. Father, not just the examples in the word of God, but the examples throughout church history. And help us to remember, Father, the many times that you've come to our aid in our own lives. Help us not be slothful, Lord, forgetful. Father, help us to have memories that will aid our spiritual journey, our spiritual pilgrimage. Lord, we want to testify again to you that, Lord, we are nothing, but you are everything. So, Lord, we turn to you and ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray.